from runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell and Greg Hughes. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 164 with guest BJ Tuari, recorded Monday, June 14th, 2010. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow the boys on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell. You're listening to Run As Radio, and I'm solo again. Greg Hughes is off on a business trip, and I didn't want to miss the chance to talk to our current guest, uh, VJ Tawari is a principal program manager in the Windows Server Virtualization team. He has been involved in virtualization since 2000 and is deeply passionate about the benefits that virtualization brings in making IT infrastructure responsive to business needs. Welcome, VJ. Hi, good morning, Richard, and good morning to all of viewers. Uh, so we're freshly back from TechEd, and uh, you had a big announcement at TechEd. Yes, we did. Uh, we had actually two major announcements in the context of virtualization, and uh, we're really excited about making uh, dynamic memory available as a part of Service Pack when. And in addition to that, we also made an announcement about uh, improving the performance of graphics when running in a virtual machine with a technology called Remote FX. Cool. So this is Service Pack 1 for Server 2008 R2? That is correct. And is it shipping today or is it imminent? Uh, it is imminent. Uh, in fact, we announced that the beta of Service Pack 1 for Windows Server 2008 R2 will be available sometime in July. Okay. And uh, we have a normal release cadence where we go through some pre-release software, get customer validation, and then go back to a full release. So probably in the early fall, September time frame, maybe? September, October? Uh, I, I normally don't want to comment on, 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 on future timelines other than saying that beta is going to be available in July, and then we'll take it from there. Great. Okay. So let's, uh, let's, Hyper-V obviously has con a long way in a very little time, uh, and the big new feature for Hyper-V is dynamic memory? Yes, certainly. Dynamic, you know, uh, you know, we've got lots of customers. In fact, while I was a tech head, I met a lot of customers. Uh, who, in all fairness, you know, uh, a lot of them, you know, ha- are working at VMware, but uh, universally, they actually had Hyper-V set up, you know, in some way, form, or the other. Right. And they were really excited with what Hyper-V brings to the table, including the new technology, dynamic memory that we're introducing with Service Pack 1. Yeah, I have a soft spot for System Center uh, Virtual Machine Manager. It, makes, it brings a smile to my face every time I look at the console. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty slick product. Yeah, it makes things good. So dynamic memory, meaning I can, on the fly, add more memory to my VMs? Yes. So, um, uh, you know, the way dynamic memory works is that uh, today memory is, is sort of a bottleneck when it comes to virtualization. You know, in order to give consistent performance, what today uh, we do in Hyper-V is that, uh, let's say you ask a virtual machine to be allocated one gigabyte of memory. Right. We ensure that that much of memory is backed by physical memory before we start up the virtual machine to make sure that we can give it consistent performance. Right. So the moment I start that VM, that gig is gone from my host memory. That is correct. That gig is gone from host memory. And uh, when we talk to customers, you know, a lot of customers find it really challenging to size the amount of memory that's required by a workload. You know, it's it's a hard thing to do because, you know, uh, unless you monitor the workload for a long period of time, it's really hard to predict what the... Uh, what the kind of utilization of memory would be. And a, and a lot of products are very memory hungry anyway. Given more memory available, they'll use it. 
That's correct. But a lot of times they'll be just sitting there doing nothing with the memory. Right. So wouldn't it be really nice if that amount of memory could be shared with the other virtual machines on the fly? And that's essentially what dynamic memory does. So am I still saying I need a gig of memory for this particular VM? Well, what you can, uh, you know, with the, with the, with dynamic memory, you actually uh, give it uh, two different types of parameters in terms of the amount of memory. You give it uh, the minimum amount of memory that's required for this virtual machine. Right. And then you give it a maximum amount of memory that's required by the virtual machine. And what we do under the covers is that we will always guarantee you the minimum. Right. But thereafter, as the workload inside the virtual machine starts asking for more memory, we will, in a cooperative manner, actually give that more memory as required. And when the virtual machine does not require that memory, we will take it away and give it to another virtual machine on the system. Wow. So I could define 512 megs to 2 gigs, and it'll grab the 512 megs when we start up. And then as the workload goes on and it starts needing more memory, it'll allocate up to 2 gigs. That is correct. We have a cooperative manner. You know, we, install, we actually install a, a dynamic memory virtual service consumer inside the operating systems that we support dynamic memory for. And it is the responsibility of that entity, which is a kernel-level module inside the operating system, to cooperate and find out the amount of memory pressure that is being exerted by the workload inside the virtual machine and then either provide that memory to the virtual machine or take away the memory if the pressure is low. So if I was actually inside one of these guest OSs and I looked at, say, Task Manager to see how much memory there was, would I see that number changing? You will see that number changing. You will see that number being the maximum amount that has ever been provided to the virtual machine. I see. So in the previous example where you gave, you know, where you said uh, you, you started off with 512 megs, mm-hmm. and let's say that the virtual machine was really idle and never really required any memory. So all you'll see is 512 because nothing was added thereafter. Right. But let's say that you started up an application which actually requires more memory, and as a consequence, you ended up with, say, 800 megabytes in the in the operating system as a consequence of that. Then if you actually query Task Manager, what you will see is 800 megabytes. Okay. So it's always showing the maximum that was ever allocated. I'm just wondering about whether applications are smart enough or how they deal with an increase in amount of available memory like that. I I just say, I'm wondering if they need to know, hey, the amount of memory available has changed. So uh, there are a certain class of applications which we'll actually need to know. And, you know, obviously we have to figure out a way to get that information across to those applications. But for most applications, they're going to ask the operating system to ask it, uh, you know, allocated memory using, you know, a memory API. Right. And when you use any one of those APIs, it is the responsibility of the operating system to abstract away the underlying uh, physical memory that's available to you. So most applications will just allocate memory from there. And inside the kernel, we can detect if the memory actually is causing paging to go on in the operating system. And if it is going to cause paging, then we will go ahead and request more memory from the underlying hypervisor. Right. So the gauge here is actually paging of memory. Rather than starting to page out to, say, disk, you just allocate more memory and continue to be able to page in memory. Right. Then, of course, we do this in a manner that you know does not affect the, the performance of the other virtual machines on the platform as well. Well, and herein lies the interesting side of this, which is I've run into this scenario before where I've got 16 or 32 gigs of RAM in my machine, but I'm running a bunch of VMs that want, I want my minimum or maximums to be two or three or four gigs of RAM, so I'm only able to run a handful of them. Now I could run many more as long as they're not all... I guess the question is, I'm going to, in theory... 
set up a group of VMs whose total maximums are more than the maximum amount of memory on my host machine. What happens when I bang into the physical RAM limit on the host machine? Well, you know, it's similar to hitting into uh, the physical limit when you're on a on a machine, let's say on a on an operating system which is on a on a machine which has got four gigabytes of memory, right? And you happen to use more than four gigabytes. What will happen is that you will start paging. Yeah. Right. So the same thing will essentially happen there. Let's say all of your virtual machines all of a sudden required all the memory, you know, to the max limit. In that case, you know, obviously we cannot give it any more memory. So each of the operating system will then be given uh, the appropriate amount of memory that's possible to give. And then above that, the operating system will be paging memory to its own disk. Right. So is it possible from a host machine perspective to set priorities for which VMs should get more of the memory? Or is it just an even split across them? Oh, that's a great question, Richard, and you probably should be part of us designing uh, dynamic memory for us. <laughs> <laughs> I've come to I've come to appreciate the fact that I've been doing this long enough that I think of all the worst case scenarios. I am a cynical, I cynical tell, man. I <laughs> <laughs> so um, we actually have um, uh, uh, another uh, parameter that you can control in the context of the virtual machine, and and you know, interestingly enough, it's called priority. Ah. And what this is, is actually the priority of that virtual machine relative to the other virtual machines on that host in terms of when we take away memory from this virtual machine. So as an example, let's say I've got two virtual machines in the system, one which is set to higher priority, other which is set to the lowest priority. In that case, the memory, uh, the virtual machine that's got higher priority or the highest priority will be the last virtual machine that we will ever try and take away memory from. Okay. So it, it won't actually scavenge memory off of that high-priority machine, or when it does scavenge memory, it scavenges last from there. Right. And obviously, if there is a me- there's an operating system or a virtual machine from which you never want memory scavenged, then you can just not turn on dynamic memory for that virtual machine. Right. You, I guess you always have that option of saying, hey, this guy gets four gigs every time. Don't talk to me about it. Right. Interesting. Yeah, a great balance there. And it does allow us to sort of flex between these things. I've certainly run into scenarios where my daytime workload is dramatically different from my nighttime workload. And so being able to to dynamically allocate out that memory one way or the other, the naturally, you know, your your mail server goes quiet at night, but your analysis services cube generator gets busy at night. And so, you know, letting them have basically share the same chunk of memory and, and scavenge from one to give priority to the other. That's correct. There's still more we could do with this. I, you know, for first rev, this has got a lot of key features in it, but I bet, you know, being able to dynamically shift priorities or, or uh, by schedule change priorities would be an interesting part of that as well. So, um, we, you know, we do allow you to change the priority on the fly. Okay. So, you know, and, and you could easily conceive of, you know, a, a simple script which either monitors some performance inside the operating system or could be on a basis of the schedule, it can change the priority of those virtual machines or the uh, change the priority for the dynamic memory for those virtual machines on the fly. So we do allow you to change that on the fly today. It, this is starting to feel very cloud-like now. Now I could imagine three or four host machines all looking at the memory pressures of each other and saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to ship this VM over to you because you're just not that busy. And, and I'm starting to get busier and busier. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it the adding the, the dynamic memory is just another metric we can watch for which machines are stressing and why. That's correct. I mean, our, our goal always has been to provide a platform which gives the customers the most flexibility on how they deploy their virtual machines and thereby their workloads on that platform. 
And these are just enhancements that we've been making along the way. And there's another aspect of this, which is, uh, so I give you a maximum of four gigs of RAM, and I let this uh, VM run for uh, a couple of months, and then I go look and see, well, what was the top allocation ever given to? And it probably maybe it never even gets to two gigs. Right, and that way you know that you know you uh, that that way you know what your workload is doing, and that's a good indication to say, well, maybe I don't need to give it a maximum of two gigabytes. Maybe a lower one will work much better. Right. Although, on the other hand, with dynamic memory, there's just no consequence now to uh, right, and you don't have to worry. Is is there much of a lag or, or a, a latency bonk when you do additional memory allocations? Not really, actually. We are evaluating, you know, the pressure on the memory subsystem inside the virtual machine at a fairly aggressive pace. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think at this point of time, uh, uh, we do it probably at about one second interval. So we we are really quick in allocating the memory, uh, you know, into the virtual machine. And is there any, you know, I think about memory pages much the same way. I've dealt with this a lot in scaling websites and things where fragmentation of memory might be an issue. If I've got a gig allocated out to a VM in, in a block of memory right now and I need another gig, it's not going to be contiguous to the first gig I got. Is there any consequence to that? Well, uh, there are always consequences when you have defragmentation. But, you know, from our perspective, you know, in any case, the virtual machine is dealing with, with what it thinks is the physical address, although under the covers we have to translate that into the physical address anyway. Right. So, you know, we, we can take care of that under the covers because we have to redirect the, the page to any, uh, you know, uh, to the actual physical address. That's not really that much. Right. The, the point being, you've been doing this in virtualization anyway, so this is not a exactly. big, big stretch. So it's not really a big deal, right? Right. Uh, and in any case, today with the uh, NUMA architectures, you know, a, a lot of the memory is non-uniform in terms of the memory access times. Right. We try and do our best to make sure that, uh, we we restrict uh, you know the the memory access to the NUMA node from where the virtual machine is being scheduled. Yeah, so that you're you're tending to use the same set of controllers no matter what for that VM. You find a way. That's that is correct. We we did a great show on NUMA back a, a few months ago just to m- help people understand how much the hardware is being shaped to make virtualization work fairly seamlessly. So. Going forward, you know, the number of cores increasing and the amount of, it seems to me like the amount of memory available in these machines is not keeping up with the number of cores that we're getting. Do you, do you tend to, do you agree with that? Do you, do you find we're having, you know, it's getting easier and easier to get huge numbers of cores in the machine, but we're still 128 gigs of RAM seems to be the easy limit these days. That's correct. I mean, you know, you're right. I mean, the, with the amount of computing that's going out in terms of the computing capacity of the of the machines, you know, and with virtualization becoming a lot more prevalent, you do, you tend to see a slight digression between the amount of memory available versus the amount of uh, computing capacity available on the machines these days. Yeah, and it, it, it's a it's a strange proportion that we it shifted over the years anyway. For a long time, we had one very fast processor and RAM gradually increased, and now we're getting more and more processors in the RAM per processors, you know, going down a little bit. I don't know if there's an ideal number or not. And it, it depends again from you know from uh, from customer to customer what an ideal number really means. But mm-hmm. you know, I've seen a lot of work being done by the OEMs to increase the capacity of the memory on the physical systems as well. So I think eventually they will catch up once again. Yeah, and the the memory architectures. If we, if we start thinking about massive numbers of cores, sixty four, one hundred twenty eight cores. I feel like our memory architecture is going to have to change again to be able to address that the amount of RAM we're going to have to attach to that core cluster. 
So you were talking about uh, other features in SP1 for Hyper-V. There's a, the ability to uh, utilize video more efficiently? That's correct. There's another technology called Remote FX that we're also including as a part of Service Pack 1. Mm-hmm. And essentially today in Hyper-V, if you, you know, we provide a 2D graphic card into the virtual machine. Right. I mean, which works great, you know, for server workloads, you know, it's, it's, it works great. And even for VDI workloads, it works, you know, just fine. But, you know, obviously as customers start to deploy more and more of VDI, they are actually looking for the rich 3D experience that they get when they're sitting on their desktop or laptop today. Right. And in order to sort of uh, enhance our capability there, uh, we are providing the ability to inject a synthetic 3D graphics adapter into the virtual machine itself. And that's called remote FX. So we effectively, the OS inside of the guest environment now has that, uh, that full suite of 3D capabilities that we're seeing from WPF and, and DirectX and so forth? That's correct. You know, you can have DirectX applications that work great. And is that actually mapped back to the GPU of the host machine? Yes. So the way remote FX works is that it basically uh, uses or you require to have a, a a 3D graphics physical adapter in the server right. where you're hosting this virtual machine. And we, we offload the rendering of the of from this virtual machine which has a 3D adapter on to that physical GPU and then have the rendered stream sent back to the client uh, under 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 a new encoding scheme that is also developed as a part of remote FX. Mm-hmm. And then the RDP client on the on the on the client end decodes that and then displays it to the user. So the GPU of the client machine is not involved in the rendering any more than just displaying any other screen. It's not doing anything. That is rendering. correct. That is correct. By def- I mean, other than display rendering, that's correct. But right. we do, you know, also have uh, some some technology in terms of being able to provide a hardware decoder. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were a few people at the uh, at the remote FX partner booth at TechEd, where they were actually displaying a thin client, which used this uh, hardware ASIC decoder to actually decode the uh, the stream as well. Interesting. So they're actually pushing the stream to the client. That's correct. Okay. Uh, no, I wouldn't say stream to the client. The rendering things takes place on the server. Always takes place on the server, but, but the they decoding are... can take place in the decoding can take place in, uh, with silicon. Okay, I get it. But and in, I mean, this is uh, an unusual scenario for real server scenarios. Three D is not important. This seems like the scenario heading to more towards the almost terminal services like workstations or the the movement towards uh, virtualizing works high end workstations. This is primarily targeted at uh, VDI, virtual desktop infrastructure, right. where customers are wanting to run their client operating systems as virtual machines on the server right. and then have the display rendered available to a remote station. Now, if you've only, yeah, now the question is how much GPU horsepower do I need in that server if I want to have multiple workstations doing 3D renders? Well, we'll provide some more guidance around this when we actually go out in uh, during the beta time frame. Sure. But, you know, obviously the amount of virtual machines that you can host on a server will depend upon the capabilities of the physical graphics card that's available in that server. Yeah. The amount of memory and so on and so forth. Well, and there's been a special class of, of graphics cards made that are more physics engines than they are graphics card. It sounds like something we might be able to harness there because you'd... You you want to be able to do the rendering, but it's not so much about the pixel mapping to the screen. You just need to be able to do the rendering. Yeah. 
Yeah, they said, yeah, you're building an interesting scenario there, VJ, that, 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 that would be a very cool machine for some of the stuff that it could do. But it, it feels to me like we're headed towards this every app is virtualized mindset, which I, I don't have a uh, problem with. I think it's, it's pretty compelling. Yeah, and particularly because, you know, it provides a lot of flexibility to the administrators in terms of deployment, provisioning, deprovisioning, uh, you know, maintenance and so on and so right. forth. Uh, so it provides a lot of flexibility and that's, why customers like this. In fact, I've had customers who who are saying that look, you know, I want to virtualize even the heaviest workloads that I have. I'm not I'm not averse to running just one virtual machine on a physical platform as long as I can virtualize it because then I get that flexibility of, you know, moving it, you know, it, it it's a lot more flexible. Yeah, I want to be able to pick it up, throw it in another machine. I mean, that's the most terrifying thing, I think, for for anybody who's owned infrastructure for a length of time is I have an application running on a piece of hardware that's out of warranty, and there's no certainty as to how what it's going to take to move it off that hardware onto new hardware. And virtualization just takes that fear out. That's correct. You, you point it to it. You go to, an uh, abstraction layer. It's it's an important abstraction layer that just the hardware doesn't matter. So now that I have a a set of 3D drivers that are completely abstracted from the hardware, I just don't have to worry about that anymore. My CAD workstations can move from machine to machine pretty painlessly. Do you see that capability showing up in the workstation versions of uh, virtualization? I mean, Hyper-V hasn't made it to the workstation yet, but here's to hoping. Yeah, I mean, uh, we already have virtualization capabilities on the desktop in mm-hmm. terms of a, uh, an application called Virtual PC, uh, which provides a virtualization platform on the desktop. And we'll continue to enhance the virtualization capabilities going forward on the desktop as well. Yeah, and and uh, I see a I see a future where every time I install an application, I specify a VM to go around it. It's just part and parcel with the process, especially when you start looking at these future architectures of workstations where we have tons of cores and tons of memory. Uh, you know, it's all well and fine uh, on the development side to talk about how we're going to build software differently. But looking at the software we currently have, uh, it seems like virtualization is the solution to using many cores and, and lots of RAM by just simply putting each app in its own safe virtualized can. Right. That, that's certainly one aspect of it. And the other aspect which you brought up is, you know, the developer and tester scenario where a lot of application developers now want the ability to develop their applications, you know, multi-tier applications on their desktop or laptop. Right. Well, and I think this is a great uh, part of the virtualization skill set for an IT organization is that test infrastructure for dev where you can spin up different test environments. This is really where virtualization came from, thinking in the way, way back times when we had to test against Windows 95 and Windows for Workgroups and, and all these different versions. And rather than keep all that old hardware around, we had VMs for each one of them. Yes. And in fact, even today, you know, inside Microsoft, we use virtualization very heavily for a wide variety of uh, spectrum of workloads, starting obviously, you know, with all our in fact, all of MSDN and TechNet, which a lot of the IT developers, IT pros and developers love, they're actually completely hosted as virtual machines on Hyper-V. Uh, over 50% of Microsoft.com, which is one of the busiest websites on the planet, is, is hosted on Hyper-V as well. And there are a whole host of other properties in, in Microsoft, external and internal, which are hosted on Hyper-V. In addition to that, we've also got large test infrastructures 
where exactly as you mentioned previously, where 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 you know uh, consumers of those can literally spin up virtual machines, conduct their tests, destroy it, and then move on to the next test. It's it's uh, you know it's it's uh, something that we uh, we say really take seriously, and it has certainly helped uh, you know give us a lot more. Uh, flexibility and dynamism in our test infrastructure. Yeah, and in, when you look at that test scenario, I've looked at continuous integration rigs where after they finish the build, they l- literally are programmatically lighting up the machines they're going to need to do the testing, and provisioning speed suddenly becomes vitally important. We don't think about that much in our day-to-day operations where we don't, we're not spinning up new instances every day, but that test infrastructure certainly stresses the ability to provision fast. Right. In fact, you know, now, uh, you know, uh, as Windows gets built, you know, the next generation of Windows gets built on a daily basis, we also have VHDs coming out of the build labs on a daily basis as well. So customers who don't need to deploy on the physical platform because they're not testing some physical capability, you know, they can just suck the VHD from there, spin up a virtual machine, spin up their tests, and, you know, off you go. I'm seeing a cultural shift around VMs, too, where, you want to try out a new development environment or you want to try up a different di- platform, you just take a VM of it. You don't have to do that great struggle of installing and configuring software. It seems to me that we're not that far away from that being the provisioning methodology for all desktop applications where your uh, your IT guys are going to set up a new version of the CAD software, test everything out, be happy with it, and simply swap the VM out and everybody's going to run a new one the next day. Right. I mean, that, that, you know, that's certainly, you know, uh, I think one uh, way to do it. The other thing that we've done with Windows 7 and Windows Server 2008 R2 is we actually support uh, booting from the VHD in the native mode as well. So you don't need any virtualization or hypervisor layer. You can literally plonk a VHD on an NTFS partition, set up your boot tables, and you can actually boot directly off of that physical, off that VHD. Right. So we we really treating the VHD as as a type one container for the operating system, regardless of whether it's physical or whether it's virtual. Do you actually see much difference when you boot directly to a VHD versus running it in the traditional hypervisor mode? Uh, when you're booting off of a VHD, you know, uh, again, it depends on exactly what you're doing. But we've seen about a three to five percent, you know, uh, you know, uh, lower performance. But that's about it. Other than that, you know. You do see a couple of extra disks in your disk manager because right. you know the physical disk on which it is lying, plus the VHD partition, uh, you know the VHD itself. But other than that, I I run completely in a boot from VHD manner, and it's it's been great. You know the flexibility that it gives me. Yeah, the only downside of the boot the VHD is that you're in one VHD, where in the hypervisor mode I might have three or four VHDs running, and I can hop between them fairly painlessly. In terms of booting off of a different VHD? Well, you said when you boot off a given VHD, now you're in that VHD. If you want to get access to another one, you have to boot to that one. Right. Yeah. Uh, just like in, a, in the VM case, too, you would have to boot to a different VHD right. if you want to get a different image. So yeah. You, you know, for example, on my laptop, I have, you know, uh, multiple VHDs, and my boot, boot system is set up to boot off of one of them, and then I can point the boot to a different one, and then I'm fine there as well. And you're still running a virtualization layer, right? That VHD is not seeing the actual hardware on your laptop. It's seeing an abstraction. No, no. On, on my laptop, it's actually literally, there's no virtualization under it. That's, that's really? the beauty of this. Yeah, it's just boots. It's native boot of VHD. Interesting. So, uh, yes. So our, so our boot infrastructure now basically can parse the VHD and mount it and then boot off of that. So that's basically it. There's no virtualization layer. If you lift that VHD off and drop it onto a different machine running in a hypervisor mode, doesn't it have to flip drivers at that point? 
you will have to do some amount of work to actually make sure that you know uh, you know you can actually get it off there but it's, it's something that's easy that's scriptable right yeah yeah this is fascinating stuff and and in, like i said it's only a few percentage points performance difference either way so you have to debate uh, necessarily which which you particularly need uh, that's right my, my main workstation i end up running uh multiple vhds but I, so I don't boot from them because I'm constantly flexing between those different environments. But and the ability to say this VHD should now go over to this server and run from there, so that right. and I'll call to it remotely is really really useful. But that certainly requires the virtualization layer. And absolutely, I think, uh, yeah, and, and powerful stuff. So uh, uh, beta in July, ship sometime right. after that. Uh, any look, you know, what didn't make SP one? Do you see things for SP two? Well, you know, uh, we'll always look, continue to make enhancements in the future. So I wouldn't like to speculate what's uh, what's going to be there in SP2, or even if there is going to be an SP2. So, uh, but you know, customers, uh, you know, are really looking forward to dynamic memory and remote FX, and we are really excited, and we were really happy talking to customers. It was pretty amazing to see their response to dynamic memory and report FX at uh, TechEd. Oh yeah, your virtualization booth was packed all the time. I could barely get near you. Yeah, and that's part of the reason I didn't get to go and see a little bit of New Orleans, but it was great talking to customers. It's always great. Yeah, I guess that's the main. I I was uh, fortunate enough to do the TechEd 101 presentations uh, for folks who'd never been to TechEd before. And one of my main messages was, this is an opportunity for you to get face-to-face with the Microsoft people who build these products and vice versa. They really want to talk to you too. And uh, that seems to resonate well at TechEd, that it's a, it's a time to get together with your customers and talk seriously about the products. Exactly. And, you know, it's been great to see the kinds of conversations, you know, where customers are literally saying, hey, you know what, this is my scenario. This is what I'm trying to do. Can you help me figure out how to do this? It's, it's uh, you know, I, had, I can't tell you how many whiteboarding examples and conversations I had with customers at TechEd. It's just, it's just amazing. Awesome. Vijay, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Richard. Really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. <laughs> <laughs>